Holy Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, as I mentioned a minute ago, my name is Stephanie. For those of you who don't know me, um, I've lived in Knoxville 20 years. I'm married to Alan. We have three adult children, Lucy, Ruth, and Nathan. And we have, and I have two sons of another mother, uh, my son-in-laws, <laughs> uh, Ryan and Sawyer. I'm married to my two girls. Um, I can honestly say that being a parent has been and continues to be um, probably the most major means of sanctification in my life. God has used um, my hard-headedness, my ineptitude to humble me and cause me to desperately seek him for grace and mercy over and over, day by day. One particular day when I failed miserably to protect one of my children from harm really stands out to me and it probably always, always will. Um, Nathan, our only son, was just past his first birthday. You know, we had two girls before he came along, but y'all know, boys are really different. Um, he was really fast on his feet and into everything. So early one morning, after the chaos of getting the two girls off to school, that had passed and we were just hanging out at home, but Nathan decided he would go into my bedroom crawl behind a huge um, antique chair and a table that I thought he'd never get behind, and he got to an antique floor lamp that was sitting in the corner of our room. Well, he decided to pull himself up on the floor lamp, and when he did so, he bashed it against the wall. Shards of glass shattered everywhere in our room, and one came back and hit him right in the head above his orbital lobe on his left eye. Um, it was a bloody mess. My bedroom in that corner looked like a slasher movie for months, but Alan had the presence of mind to grab Nathan to pull a shard of glass out of his head before we put compression on the wound and, and held it with a towel. So we, we got in the car, I drove, bad idea, but we sped to the nearest ER, um, me behind the wheel, I was in near hysterics, and Alan was just holding Nathan on his lap with a towel mashed against his head. Well, we had called ahead to get the best plastic surgeon we knew in our Florida town to meet us at the ER. So he was there when we got there. And, um, the doctor escorted Nathan and, and Alan off into an operating room and the nurse took one look at me and she laid me on a gurney in the hallway. She's like, honey, you just stay here. So that's what I did. Um, but in the operating room, the doctor was really frustrated to discover that there was no papoose restraint in the room. And a papoose restraint is what they use for infants who need surgery, and it wraps them up, apparently kind of ties them down. Well, there was no papoose in the room. And the doctor really needed Nathan to be completely still if he was going to be able to successfully close this really deep wound. So he looked at poor Alan and he said, you're going to have to hold him down while I operate. And we're not going to use anesthesia because it'll just make it swell. So you hold him while I sew him up. Well, that's just what Alan did. He laid his chest across Nathan's whole body. He held down his little arms 
and he put his face right in front of him and said, Nathan, look at me. Look at daddy. Don't look at the doctor. You know, don't look at that needle with the thread. Look at me. Keep your eyes on daddy. And when this is all over, I'm going to take you home. Mommy's waiting. Well, 75 stitches later, we took our son home. Uh, and let me just say, if you ever, if your kids ever get a face wound, find a plastic surgeon. Nathan's handsome and fine, and he doesn't even remember that traumatic day, luckily. But today we'll see how Israel has to keep their eyes on their Heavenly Father as they come to the pinnacle of events that's or that have been orchestrated by God to bring their deliverance from their captivity in Egypt. As we've seen over the last two weeks, Israel, whom God loves as his firstborn, has been a witness to the devastation that God inflicted on Egypt. All around them, the land is in ruins. And one final plague is coming. In all of this calamity, God has kept his arms around the Israelites who live in the region of Goshen, which has been spared the devastation. Division one on your handout is entitled The Firstborn Redeemed by the Blood, and it covers chapter 12, verses 1 through 32. Remember, if you were with us last year in the study of Genesis, we were introduced to the concept of sacrificial systems connected with the blood of animals. From the moment that God himself clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins after the fall in the Garden of Eden, the shedding of blood was associated with atonement because of mankind's sin of rebellion against God. Now, in the history of the fledgling nation of Israel, the blood of a lamb will once again prove crucial, although it's going to be applied in a new way. Last week at chapter 11, we saw Moses deliver to Pharaoh the edict that the last plague was imminent, the death of the firstborn. The Egyptian god Ra, who that culture believed was the creator of the whole universe and all mortal and human life, um, he was about to have his impotence revealed by God's, by God and the God of the one true Israel. Israel's Yahweh is going to show the depths of his mighty power while also demonstrating a father's heart for his own children. Starting with verse 1 through 20, we see the Lord give instructions to Moses and Aaron about preparing for this very first Passover. On the 10th day of the first month of Abib on Israel's calendar, an unblemished lamb was to be chosen from the flocks, one for each household. Remember, at this point, only Israel has any living flocks and animals left. Um, there was a precise equivalent substitution between the number of people in the household and the lamb that was required. Then at twilight, four days later, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel were to slaughter their lambs. The lamb's blood was to be applied per some very specific instructions that we'll see in a minute. So the entire lamb was to be roasted without breaking any of its bones. The people inside the homes were to eat the entire roasted lamb along with bitter herbs, and those herbs symbolized their years of oppressive captivity under the Egyptians. Now any leftovers were to be burned, and Israel was instructed to observe this feast fully dressed with their staffs in hand, 
poised to make a hasty departure. God promises Moses and Aaron that when he sees the blood covering the houses, he will pass over them and everyone inside will live. The firstborn of Israel would be delivered from death by the sign of blood, while the Egyptians who were trusting in their gods would face judgment. God specifies in verse 14 that the commemorative feast to the Lord is to be a perpetual observance. Historically, the deliverance by blood on the doorpost was for this specific occasion, but the celebration feast would stand year after year, Scripture says, forever. Now that Moses and Aaron had been fully informed by God, they have to disseminate this information to two and a half million Israelites that they've been called to lead. Moses sends the elders of Israel, representatives from each of the 12 tribes, and he instructs them on what to tell the people under their care. So he is really providing us an awesome picture of a very organized delegation. Full participation is going to be required for the survival of this nation. Go with me to verses uh, 21 through 28 while I read. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his houses until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now Israel had seen God's mighty power in action through the previous plagues that Bishop so beautifully covered last week, but this applying blood to the doorpost to protect their own firstborn was a strange kind of new request. It was a new request. As they remained in their homes that dark night and waited for Yahweh to pass over, they had to be deeply concerned if they were thinking about it at all. You know, God was holy, and the coming judgment would be severe. In their heart of hearts, they had to acknowledge that they were far from guiltless people. What they didn't yet understand is that the Father wasn't going to pass over them because they were guiltless, but only because they were under the blood of the spotless lamb. In verse 29, midnight arrives. Wails must have spread throughout Egypt as the death of the firstborn is executed equitably from the palace to the prison. Verse 30 tells us there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
and the widespread destruction of even all the firstborn animals would have felt like another heavy blow of judgment on the Egyptians against their gods, since so many uh, of the animals, from goats to cats to cows to sheep, were deified in that pagan religion. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron that very night, and he demanded that they take the people of Israel away in haste immediately. And Pharaoh is so humiliated, I think, at this point by the power of Moses that he even pitifully asked Moses to bless him before he leaves. Israel's God has declared in the sight of Pharaoh and all of Egypt that his rightful throne of kingship will never be shared by another. In his holiness, he alone is mighty and worthy to exact judgment on all of mankind. And in his loving mercy, he alone is capable of redeeming all of creation to new life. The redemption experienced by Israel on that first Passover was a foreshadowing of the grace that would be offered by Christ at his death on the cross. Many years later, a strange countercultural prophet named John the Baptist would point at Jesus Christ and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's look at the portraits of Jesus here in the Passover story. The Paschal Lamb, the Lamb was to be kept whole, without any of its bones broken. When Jesus Christ died on the cross by crucifixion, the Roman soldiers didn't break a single bone in his body to speed up death as was common in that day. Every Egyptian household was responsible for sacrificing a lamb for their redemption. At the Passover, Jesus, the one lamb of God, died once for all who would receive him. Israel's Passover lambs had to be spotless, without blemish. We know Jesus Christ was a perfect lamb, without blemish or spot. He had committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. That's from 1 Peter 1.18. Jesus shared the Passover meal, the Last Supper, with his disciples, and his death on the cross occurred on that same Passover. You can read about that in John 13. God instructed all of Israel to sacrifice their Paschal lambs at twilight. Jesus hung on the cross from six, the sixth hour to the ninth hour as darkness settled over the land. That's from Luke 23. As they ate the Passover meal in haste, the Israelites were instructed to eat the whole lamb as nourishment. They were about to go on a long journey. Jesus Christ proclaimed himself to be the bread of life, promising that whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's from John 6. You know, the Apostle Paul would address the shared fallen nature of us all when he wrote to the Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a fancy word that means sacrifice or appeasement by his blood to be received by faith. That's from Romans 3. I like the way one commentator put it. Um, 
They said, many people today find it difficult to believe that blood shed on a cross 2,000 years ago has any saving power for them. It only makes sense if we understand substitution. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a promise you can read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And that's our principle here. There is no other means of redemption from judgment and death than through the applied sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our spotless Lamb. So what's the application here for us? Well, the visible evidence that the Israelites were trusting God to save them appeared as blood on their doorposts and lentils. So how are you and I demonstrating, both visibly and invisibly, our trust in his grace? Are there places in our lives where we, may be, we might be stubbornly refusing to take refuge in the substitute that the Father has already provided for us in Christ? You know, as hard as I try, I can't muster up my own righteousness. Like one of my favorite old hymns says, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Division two, deliverance out of the night to freedom looks at Exodus 12, 33 through 50. So Israel has been redeemed from the death, from death because of the applied blood from the lambs that was substituted for each household. So now, as they keep their eyes on the Father, he's going to deliver them out of their state of captivity to eventual freedom, to new life. And his eyes were on them too. I love verse 42 because it says, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So put yourselves in the sandals of the Israelites that night. They've heard from their um, elders that Pharaoh has finally relented. He is going to let them go. They've prayed and waited for this day for years. All two and, a, two and a half million of them. They can take their entire families, the flocks that have survived, and even the things that, that were given to them by the Egyptians. And they can follow Moses now, arranged by tribe and clan. You can imagine their hesitancy and fear, though. Um, was the wealthy, power-hungry king of Egypt really going to let them just walk away? He had expanded his empire on the backs of this enslaved people. Is he truly going to let them go without a fight? God ensured that they made a hasty departure without really gathering too many provisions besides those livestock and the unleavened dough that they took with them on the cloaks of their back. Um, and those, those items that all the Egyptians had already given them. Whatever they asked for, it was handed over. And it included extra clothing, silver, and gold. The Egyptians knew, they knew that the plagues they just suffered through had been sent by this God of the Israelites, and they wanted them gone. Never has such a large captive people group left a country without lifting a finger. They didn't have to fight to acquire their plunder. 
They simply gathered up what God had told them to, and they began their march. This scene was the fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham back in Genesis 15:14, when he foretold the end of their days in Egypt. God said, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and they shall come out with great possessions. It was their very deserved back pay for wages that they never received. The masses stopped in Sukkoth. Verse 38 points out that it was a mixed multitude that also came along with Israel, and we can assume that some of the Egyptians or people in the community, foreigners, had decided to leave their devastated lot behind and follow along with this very peculiar nation who worshipped a different god. At their Sukkoth respite, they baked their unleavened bread cakes from the dough that they brought with them as they fled into the night. And here the Lord gives Moses and Aaron further direction about the institution of Passover. You could say that the family of Israel was establishing some new family traditions for their faith to grow and to be handed down to future generations, and always for God's glory to be proclaimed. The covenant promises that God made to Abraham are unfolding here. The father has multiplied Abraham's offspring and after 430 years has redeemed them and is leading them home. God had told Abraham that his people would bless the nations and here we see God making allowances for these other people groups in verses 44 through 49. The father makes a way for the foreigners and slaves among the Israelites to be grafted in by the right of circumcision so they could be counted among God's people and celebrate these feasts and observances. So God chose to demonstrate his power by passing over those whom he chosen, those covered by the blood. He exacted judgment on those who refused to take shelter under the blood of the lamb. Without the Passover, Israel's freedom would not have been secured. Without redemption, there can be no deliverance to new life. Israel's redemption from death and deliverance to freedom and eventually to the promised land was a kind of dress rehearsal if you think about it. One day, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who's been raised from the dead and is seated at God's right hand this very minute, will come back for you and me to deliver us home and usher in his kingdom on earth. And on that day, we will celebrate with him at a great wedding feast. Our principle of application here, Christ's sacrifice brings new life, and our position in him delivers us to freedom and adoption as his children. So if you belong to Jesus, you've been delivered from captivity and transferred to the kingdom of the Son. Are you and I living in that reality of freedom? Freedom from fear and death? Or are we still being confined by our old nature of slavery to sin, slavery to self-righteousness. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We are forgiven and free, free to follow him. Well, Division 3, commanded to remember, covers chapters 13, 1 through 16. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. The 
feast of unleavened bread would be established as a remembrance of how the Lord set Israel as his chosen nation and secured for them his firstborn an inheritance in the land of Canaan. God instructed Moses that from the 15th day until the 21st, the feast of the unleavened bread should be observed as part of the whole Passover celebration. It commemorated Israel's being set apart as yeast is set apart from bread dough. And yeast, we know, changes the properties of bread dough. So Israel was to remain set apart from the other nations. Being set apart is what we call, in Christian circles, sanctification. It's the process of growing in holiness through God's grace. So as they moved out on their journey, Israel's sanctification would be a major point of instruction for them, particularly as they received the law from Moses at Mount Sinai. Yahweh was calling Israel to remain set apart from other nations and follow him in a path of holiness. The yeast that had been separated and cleaned out for the baking of bread was meant to represent the removal of our old sin nature, um, the desires of the flesh that hold us apart from God. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ, the Feast of Unleavened Bread points toward the believer's walk, our walk of holiness in God's grace. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be made a new lump, and you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In verse 11 of chapter 13, Moses also refers to what will be known as the observance of the first fruits once Israel is established in Canaan. Every firstborn male animal would be sacrificed to God as a memorial of their deliverance out of Egypt, and every firstborn son would be redeemed at a cost in shekels. This observance, again, is a foreshadowing of the fact that one day Jesus Christ would become the firstborn of the dead when he was raised from death and ascended into heaven. We too will be raised with him if we belong to him. It's another picture of how our redemption under his blood delivers us into his kingdom. It's a free yet extremely costly gift. The point of verses 9 and 16, which mentioned putting God's statutes as a mark on your hand or between your eyes or as frontlets on the forehead, would one day be taken way out of context by the Pharisees. But the point of, of it was that Israel was to keep God's precepts in view. I think King David gets it right when he said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you from Psalm 119. Our study of God's word here together, both personally and, and corporately, should stir gratitude in our hearts daily, moment by moment. You know, we're called to remember his goodness and live in that. In the New Testament, Luke 22 reveals the moment when Jesus gathered his closest disciples together in Jerusalem on the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. But in this case, there's no mention of a lamb being served on the table because the lamb was at the table. 
Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In the Christian tradition, we celebrate this meal, and we call it the Lord's Supper, or communion. And we end communion service by saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Scripture tells us that baptism is a sacrament observed once in our lives, but the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated regularly. It's a meal of remembrance for us. And we're to teach our children the meaning and the significance of it, just as Moses commanded the Israelites that they were to teach their own children of God's redemptive deliverance of their nation. The foundation of discipleship begins in our homes, begins with you. So what's our principle here? Practicing gratefulness by remembering our deliverance from death to life brings God glory and bears witness to those we love. Are there ways that you and I have become forgetful? Forgetful of God's goodness, his presence, his provision of Jesus for us, for our salvation? How are we observing and remembering the traditions of faith that reveal God's plan of redemption in the presence of our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors? Now we move on to Division 4, Guided by God into the Wilderness. Look at um, chapters, chapter, um, excuse me, verses 17 through 22 in chapter 13. So the Israelites left Egypt. They were expecting trouble because verse 18 says they left equipped for battle. You know, captivity was all they had known for over 400 years. They were not well-traveled people, but they knew enough to know that beyond the borders of Egypt, there were enemies who might seek to steal their livestock, these possessions that they took with them of gold and silver, and even maybe enslave them once again. God knew, he knew the fears of their hearts. And so, though it's not a direct, seemingly logical route, if you looked on the map, God chose a safe route for them, where they wouldn't lose their nerve by confronting the fierce armies of the Philistines. God plans to keep them separate from other nations as he refines them and leads them and instructs them. They don't know it yet, but it's going to take about 40 years. Um, but the desert, and the desert will be difficult. But it's necessary. It's going to be very necessary for their journey and the process of sanctification. And Moses shows that he has no intention of turning back it's a really interesting fact that he is so confident that they have left Egypt for good that scripture mentions that he carries the bones of their patriarch Joseph with them in the Exodus. It's a fulfillment of the promise we learned about in Genesis chapter 50 that once in Canaan, Joseph's ancestors were sworn to bury him there as they claimed the promised land. Those bones were a sign and symbol that they were captives no more. And Moses is saying, we're not going back. 
Can you imagine the daunting task of leading two and a half million people all in the same direction, all at the same time? I mean, sometimes it's hard to get your children through the grocery store together, right? But how in the world would Moses and Aaron ever communicate when to stop, when to pack up and go, when to move for this whole sea of humanity? How are they supposed to lead two and a half million people away from the presence of Pharaoh? By following the presence of God. He would go before them, and we read it's in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The direction they were headed may not have made much sense to them. It was definitely a long way to Canaan. But if they chose to keep their eyes on their father, he would lead them home. And that's our principle here. Keeping our eyes on God gives us courage to proceed even when circumstances don't make sense because we've experienced his faithfulness in the past. We know of his presence, his grace in times of destruction and hardship, and his grace in the days of goodness and joy. Is there a situation in our lives right now where we might be refusing to step out and follow God out of fear because things look really impossible? You know, it's been a full lesson today. I've thrown a lot at you. And we've looked at some very pivotal events. But there is one main takeaway I want us to think about before we leave. The exodus that Moses led points to a better exodus the Lamb of God would one day accomplish for his people. A better exodus is coming. The Passover, the feast, the celebrations that God instituted through Moses' leadership, the whole sacrificial system followed by Israel through the ages was all meant to point to the one perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. The awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, his shed blood would cover everyone who comes to him, bringing us from death and darkness to life, to light, to freedom. Have you turned your eyes toward him yet? He's waiting, and he wants to bring you home. Let me pray for us. Faithful Father, what a miraculous work of redemption you carried out for Israel and continue to carry out for us. We're in awe of your abundant grace and mercy. In your faithful love, you sent your only son, Jesus, as a substitute for us to live a life we could never live and die in our place so that we could be raised to life with him. In Christ, death has been defeated. You have forgiven us as far as the east is from the west, and you look on us as righteous. The blood of the spotless lamb has set us free from the captivity of sin, from the shame that once caused us to cower and hide from you. The Father who knows us best loves us most. Fill up our heads this morning. Lift up our heads with your truth so that we might keep our eyes on you, on the one who has promised to bind up our wounds, deliver us, and bring us home. It's in the merciful and mighty name of Jesus that we pray. 
Amen.